Welcome to the What's Your Ethos podcast. Hi, I'm Peter Colas, the CEO of Ethos. Today, I talked with Daniel Schreiber, the co-founder and CEO of Lemonade, which is a publicly listed insurtech carrier with 1.8 million customers and 625 million of premiums in force. We discussed the company's multi-product strategy, innovation across the customer buying journey, uses of AI and behavioral economics, and public company leadership. So let's jump into it. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. So eight years ago, you're the president of PowerMat Technologies. What prompted you and your co-founder to start Lemonade? Um, yeah, I was rounding up um, a stint at PowerMat and thinking about my, my next endeavor. I was in my mid-40s at that point. Um, I'd been in entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship since my you know early 20s, I guess. I, I started life as a corporate commercial attorney, but I'd been clean I'm a recovering attorney. I've been clean for like 20 something years. And I was thinking about kind of what's my next thing. I felt that I was ready to do something big, hairy and audacious. Um, I, I was looking to do that. I felt that this might be my last run at something big. And also that what I'd learned of the preceding couple of decades probably prepared me reasonably well for that. So I started looking around for what what that might be. Um, and actually, early on, I thought it would be something totally different. I was expecting to do something in the area of medicine, synthetic biology and DNA sequencing. And I just felt like the whole area of medicine was about to explode in really interesting ways. I still think that, but the competitive dynamics were just um, off-putting. And I chanced into insurance. It was actually a a chance encounter was I went off to Singularity University to kind of do a one week refresh, clear your mind, look out into the horizon kind of week. And Peter Diamandis, who's the one of the founders of Singularity, among other things, was giving a talk. And I don't remember what his talk was and I don't remember what the question was, but I'm, and I don't really remember what his answer was, but embedded in his answer was the sentence peer-to-peer -peer insurance. And I was primed looking for my next thing and I hadn't thought about insurance, but that kind of got me on a path looking at insurance. And then I met Shai, my co-founder, and we started kind of lemonade. And I reached out to Peter and I met him up for a coffee in New York. And I said, hey, Peter, I'm doing that thing that you mentioned in your lecture. So we met for a coffee and I explained to him what we're doing. And he was like, that's not what I meant at all. I was talking about using DNA sequencing in order to create healthcare, something I don't remember what it was. So I like to quip that Lemonade was kind of one big misunderstanding, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's how we got started in any event. And you didn't just start a insurance company or insure to carrier, you started something that's so unique from your 20% cut and give back model to the innovative bot-based application, Maya, to AI, AI handling of whatever 98% of claims. All this didn't start on day one, but from day one, it was so different and innovative. Can you give us, you know, a lot's been written about Lemonade, but can you give us a, a succinct high-level overview of the business, your products, your business model, your go-to-market model, and how it's unique? In some ways, Lemonade is very familiar. You know, we offer renter's insurance and homeowner's insurance, pet health insurance, life insurance, and um, car insurance. And all of those are familiar products. So there's a lot of commonality. And we are a regulated insurance carrier, or rather we own both in New two in the United States and New York and, and a Delaware domiciled insurance carriers. And we also own one in Holland because we operate in Europe as well. So that much is similar. And then there's things that are 
different, um, superficially different or profoundly different. So it starts with the superficial stuff. Uh, we have a pink base logo and insurance companies tend to like the dark reds and the dark blues and the strong masculine kind of messages. Um, we came up with a name that didn't have the word state or farm in it, which is a real novelty in the US. Uh, and we called ourselves something that was kind of a bit mischievous and, and we had a bit of an attitude. And then it started running much deeper because the company is in profound ways uh, premised on and, and built upon a technological infrastructure. Both myself and Shai, my co-founder, have been in tech for over 20 years and that's what we know how to do. And the insurance part was a, a novelty for us. So everything that we do is tech enabled. So yes, it's the, the bots and the, and the apps are the outermost expression of that. And it does mean that you can buy a policy in seconds, you can get claims paid in seconds. Um, it squeezes, and maybe we'll develop this later, but it squeezes a lot of costs out of the system while delighting consumers. Because if you can get a claim paid in three seconds and you can buy a policy in 90 seconds, you're not going to bemoan the lack of human interaction. You're going to be thrilled that you got everything done and you did it at 2 a.m. in your pajamas. So that's all, all great stuff. And it goes, I think, deeper still in, in as much as insurance is the business of really monetizing probability theory, quantifying risk. And when you start thinking about how data and statistics um, have evolved and how insurance that was for hundreds of years the preeminent place to look at data and statistics, how it's ceded control over that, those domains to Silicon Valley-style engineering-based companies like yours and ours, um, and like Google and, and Facebook and you know, the better-known names. Um, I think you start getting deep into this and you start understanding that the disruption that companies like yours and, and ours are sometimes labeled as being kind of disruptive, we're not, to my mind, we're not causing disruption. We are perhaps trying to take advantage of a disruption that's happening in the world in general, which is, as I say, this digitization, the AI, the, the shift of um, a lot of these capabilities from traditional players to engineering-based cultures. And once you understand that really seismic shift, that secular shift, um, it's happening with or without us. What we're trying to do is to say, okay, a, a new age is dawning and how can we take advantage of that? And I think that is manifested in a lot of the things that we do at Lemonade as well. So all of that translates, that's a long answer, but I think it translates into familiar products that you need, your car insurance, your, your pet insurance, et cetera, but with levels of ease and simplicity that were kind of hitherto unknown, over time price points that beat out incumbents and service levels that are just unfamiliar to the industry, which enjoys very low brand loyalty, very low NPS and, and other me measures of customer satisfaction. Right. I think when people use the term Silicon Valley in fintech, oftentimes it's just shorthand for bringing together the smartest and most ambitious people to build a beautiful end-to-end -end customer experience that people love. So There are businesses that are easy to start and that you can get out an MVP and incrementally refine based on user feedback. And then there are businesses that are difficult to start that almost have a cold start problem based on a lack of users, a lack of data, regulation. But both due to capital requirements and data, it's very difficult to start an insurance company based on the need of probabilistic learning. What were some of the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome to get Lemonade going? So I think there were two or three things that in retrospect and probably in prospect as well were kind of existential difficulties that could have gone either way. And hindsight is a wonderful thing. And we know that we 
overcame them, but I'm not sure that we understood just how monumental the challenge was at the time, and we may have under underrated the dangers of the path that we chose. And the one that looms largest for me is the decision from day one to be a licensed carrier and to opt to do that in the great state of New York, which has a reputation as perhaps the most exacting or certainly one of the most exacting regulators in the world. And I'm not sure if it was the right decision, but the theory at the time was if you get regulated in New York, um, that will dispel any concerns about your viability and how serious you are, and other states will respect it. They won't rubber stamp it, but they will respect it. And the, the reverse is not always true. So we went to, to New York and tried to get regulated there, and that almost killed the company in its infancy. It, it was an incredibly arduous process. Um, and what we thought of as a straightforward kind of bureaucratic process, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean, you submit your papers and you wait and you get an approval if you tick all the boxes, turned out to be a highly political issue, really. Um, and it wasn't until we got uh, heavily engaged in the politics of, of New York and understanding why, what is good and who it's good for and why it's being delayed, etc., that ultimately we got our license. So that was very tough that could have gone wrong. And had it gone wrong, I'm not sure we'd have ever recovered from that. So that was, that was definitely one that I look back and I say, you flip that coin 10 times, maybe it only comes up comes up head once. I, I don't know quite what the odds were, but I think we underrated the dangers that we faced there. And then there's no question that we were pretty concerned about the lack of any ability to forget MVP. You can't beta test these things. You, you, there's no way to sell insurance kind of without actually going through the hard work of establishing the carrier, doing everything. And then it's only at that point that you get to test the theory that this app-based experience, the chatting to Maya the bot, that uh, an insurance company that you've never heard of with a pink lemonade logo is something that you're going to entrust um, with whatever it is that you're you're insuring. So there were a lot of question marks around that. And on the first day when we went live, it was September 2016, we just didn't know whether the dog would eat the dog food. <laughs> we just didn't know. So that was a huge uh, question mark. And in between the two, there was a lot of questions around reinsurance and would reinsurers step up and underwrite risk? And we needed it. We didn't have the capital reserves to that were required without reinsurance at that stage. So that was another big question mark. So I think those were the biggest ones. The, the cold start on the data side We've taken the approach that we're willing to pay that tuition, that if we build the infrastructure right, and I think we have in order to be able to collect data at a level of granularity that traditional insurance companies that was founded in a different era are just not architected to do. They're super smart, but they just were built for a different pe period, that very quickly we would move from a data disadvantage to a data advantage, but that we will just have to take the, the tough lesson along the way and pay that tuition until we get there. And I think that's pretty much been the case. T today, a few years in, I don't think, and I don't mean this to sound hubristic, but I don't think there's a carrier in the United States that we would switch data sets with. And we're only a, a few years old and they're oftentimes 100 or 200 years old. But just the, the way we've been able to collect data, the quality, the texture, the data architectures that we've put in place mean that I think we're getting to a level of data predictive data that is very quickly becoming the envy of of others who who just weren't architected to do that. But I don't know that there's any shortcut. You just have to raise enough money to plow through that uh, learning curve, I think.
So on the starting off with a carrier, I can't imagine that you would have been able to launch the amazing customer experience end to end that you did without being a carrier in PNC, from my understanding. That's right. It's interesting because the advice that we got at the time was of the MVP school, which, you know, says just build a front end, make it pretty, use somebody else's back end, see what you can do. And then if you prove it out, then build it out. And and a lot of other insurtechs have gone that route and some of them have been successful. But we felt, and I have no regrets on this one, but we felt strongly that to build what we want to build, we have to control everything. It's got to be vertically integrated. We have to have the relationships with the carriers. We want to be able to change some of the fundamentals of the business model, of the policy structure, of the way we pay claims. Um, and we want to be masters of our own destiny. Um, so it doesn't mean that we're, you know, we don't need partners or others, but we want to be able to control all the elements of the value chain. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it would have been near on impossible to deliver the kind of seamless experience that we do, do if we were beholden to a major carrier for whom we would be a little knit, right? I mean, they would be focused on other things. They wouldn't do the refilings that we need. They wouldn't be focused on making the change that we need. They wouldn't have the risk profile or risk appetite that we have. And therefore, we would only ever be able to move as, as quickly as they can. And I think if you if you take a 100-year-old edifice and you put a f- nice front end in front of it, that may look pretty, but it, it just doesn't go deep. So yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that we just went to the foundations and built everything from scratch. Insurance can be perceived as a commoditized product. Lemonade is so different in some of the ways that you've discussed. But when you think about what are really your core advantages, what do all these differences in the business model produce as like really unique core business advantages that compound over time? I actually, I do reduce it to one word, almost one syllable when you force me to. There's more to it. So I, I don't want to skimp on the other things and I'll, I'll try and flesh it out. But if I had to reduce it to one core, um, it would be tech. It, it would. So I think that the, and then I'll try and, as I say, flesh it out because it's not, I, I don't, thankfully we don't have to reduce it down to one syllable. So we'll, we'll build it up a bit. But I do think that at its very core, it's the ability to architect a business from scratch as an engineered, engineering kind of based culture and build insurance on top of that rather than the other way around. And talking as I do to a lot of um, CEOs of large incumbents, all of whom are incredibly impressive people who read the map and and know what's going on and understand the value of technology, and to just understand the level of frustration that they have at the inability of their culture and the technology to respond to the demands of the era, I think building something from scratch on a digital substrate is a structural advantage that manifests already but actually as that flywheel starts spinning, um, it becomes more and more powerful and really becomes a bit of a runaway advantage. I, I do think it's a structural advantage, which incumbents can spend money on technology. I, I, I remember, I've heard similar things from, from several of them, but I remember one particular CEO of a very large insurance company spent something like $3 billion a year on what he calls IT. It's his IT budget. And he just bemoaning to me that he has to spend that to stand still because his code base was written in the 1980s and COBOL programmers are hard to come by and a lot of people who architect a lot of their systems are dead and they've got so many tens of millions of customers that really shifting them onto something else is just not practical. And 
that's before you get to all the business model challenges that he has. He's got tens of thousands of brokers and he'd love to go direct to consumer, but that creates channel conflict. And he'd love to move to telemetry-based car insurance, but that would reveal to him a lot of things about his current car customers, like one two-thirds of them are subsidizing one-third of them. So he has to really lower prices to two-thirds of the customers. He doesn't want to do that. He has to raise prices for one-third of the customers. There's so many structural impediments to doing the kind of stuff that companies like yours and ours are doing, not because we're smarter than them, but just we, we had the good fortune of starting our companies in the digital era, and it came kind of naturally and natively to us. And I think that the advantage of doing that and staying true to that engineering culture will at scale manifest in every line of the PNL or every element of the combined ratio. I think it lowers cost of acquisition, lowers cost to serve. Um, I think it increases retention levels. Um, I think it allows you to price with greater precision and therefore you get positive selection rather than negative selection. I, I think it allows you therefore to get to more attractive loss ratios. Um, it allows you to respond at, at a pace that is unavailable to more traditional players. And you, technology does the thing that other businesses kind of suffer from. If you if you go on a cheap airline, you get a lower cost, but you know no peanuts. And in tech, you can pay less and get more. Right. So if you're buying insurance from a company that will sell it through an app in less time than it gets takes to get a, a latte at Starbucks and will pay your claims without any human intervention in a matter of seconds, the customer delight is through the roof. You cannot replicate that with humans, but the cost is through the floor. You can't replicate that with humans either. So I think these are structural advantages that really do, they're visible now if you know where to look, but as we grow, they become more and more powerful. I, I do want to wrap a couple of things beyond technology. So I, I think that the you mentioned this kind of earlier, Silicon Valley as a code word for customer centricity and just architecting a business with a consumer at the center. It's amazing to me to see how many incumbents just were never built that way. Um, some of them see the regulator as the center. A lot of them see the broker in the center. Those that do neither of those tend to see the policy in the center. But you go into the most popular insurance companies in the States and you're a customer of theirs and you bought your car insurance there and then they ping you and say, hey, Peter, buy home insurance for a 10% discount. And you click on that link and you come to a page that says, what's your name? And they just don't have the tools to see Peter at the center and all his policies around him. They see a policy at the center and therefore that connecting their systems is is near on impossible for them for historical reasons. They're, they're, as I say, they're smart and they wish it weren't so, but legacy is a bitch and, and they've got a lot of it. So I, I think customer centricity, if you build it from the ground up that way, married with technology that allows you to, in our systems, bring up Peter and see every interaction we've ever had with him, every campaign he clicked on, all the policies that he got quotes for and that are active and all his claims and really see the whole universe of Peter that sounds trivial and kind of automatic, and it's shocking that it's just non-existent pretty much in, in our industry. So I think customer centricity is a, is a big part of it. And then there's the stuff beyond that, the, the beautiful design, the brand, the social impact and the aligned interest through a business model that tries to neutralize conflicts of interest. You put all of that together, and I think it amounts, we, I like to think it amounts to a change in degree that amounts to a change in kind. It just feels different, feels new, feels 
qualitatively um, different to what's familiar. That makes sense. So cross-selling is insurance 101 strategy. Lemonade is unique in that you initially launched you know, a relatively lower LTV product like renters and have since expanded the portfolio to home, auto, pet, term life, and cross-sell has been kind of core to your thesis. In your last investor report, uh, you quoted an 86% annual dollar retention rate, which for our listeners means if you issue a dollar of premiums on day one, a year later, you have 86 cents. Believe that's how you're calculating it. How has uh, going multi-product changed the economics and the strategy of the business, and has it delivered what what you hoped it would have? Yeah, it hasn't changed the strategy in the sense that it, it's a man, it's an implementation of the strategy. It's something that we've always wanted to do in our in our IPO prospectus. We had a a picture of a young woman kind of climbing the hill of life. She starts off with a bike and at 25 and she's got a bag on her back and all she needs her is, you know, $5 a month insurance policy for a bike and a laptop. And then she gets the pet and she gets the, the engagement ring and the baby and the car and the house in the suburbs and all the kind of stereotypes of, of what a, what a life um, looks like as, as we step onto that conveyor belt and go through it. So, and the mountain that she climbs in the picture there has renter's insurance, then home, then all the things that we've stepped through. At the time of its drawing, we only had the one line. We were one online business. And that was really a, a laying bare our strategy, which now two and a half years later, we're, we've made a lot of progress towards. But the strategy was always the strategy. And as you say, in insurance, this is nothing novel. Incumbents do this extremely well. We're kind of late to the party. And in the insure tech space, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this, but in the insure tech space, it's been curious to me how little of this has gone on and how much pure play there is. You know, Oscar doing health and you guys doing term life and Root doing car and there's been very little hippo doing home and there's smattering of cross-selling, but it's certainly not a core plank. And that's always seemed to us a difficult nut to crack. Um, in, in areas where we didn't have multiple products, we felt that like we're competing with one hand tied behind our back. So I sell you a home policy, but not a car policy. You go elsewhere to get the car policy. And I know what that agent is telling you. They're saying, come switch them both and you save so much. So it was very difficult um, and we were succeeding, but we felt like we were at a, at a disadvantage for the lack of it. Um, in terms of the, the multi-line customers and, and the, the question they're asking, I, I think it's really early innings for us. We shared some of these stats, one of them you referenced, but as best we can tell, and not many companies publish these numbers, so it's somewhat speculative, but as best we can tell, the industry leaders in the United States, the state farms, the USAAs, have a majority of their customers, about 60% of their customers have more than one line with them. Not just more than one policy, you know, I'm not talking about two car policies, but they have car and home or whatever it is. Um, with us, that's under 4%. So we've got a tremendous amount of headroom. Now, a couple of years ago, it was 0% because we had no other policies in states, and there aren't many of them where we sell all of our products, like Illinois, the trajectory has gone much steeper and we've got to close to double that number. And, and it's one of those nice up into the right line. So we're on the right path, but we're really in the early innings. You play that movie forward, if we're successful at playing the movie forward, it is transformative to our unit economics, not just our unit economics, our economics in general particularly because 
most of our customers start with this low-end policy. So a way to think about this, this is not precise, but it's an interesting way to think about it. Our renters policy is a profitable product. Our combined ratio, our loss ratio, whatever measure you, you want to look at it, it's a profitable product. One way to think about this is a negative CAC acquisition. To think of renters not as the end game, but as a CAC, as a way to acquire customers, we've got over a million and a half renters who now know Lemonade, know the app, trust the brand, have paid back the customer acquisition costs, and now we get to market to them the home and the, the condo and the the car and the pet, etc. As, as they go through life. So that's the way we think about it. That is a long-term play. It takes years for that to play out. But we do think about the strategy not in months or quarters, but in years and decades. And in those kind of timeframes, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think NewBank has executed on the multi-product attachment strategy better than anyone I've ever seen. It's amazing to see their you know, net dollar retention if you look at their investor materials. You know, and it's an interesting question because each of these insurance markets is a massive market, right? The, the line in and of itself. For us, we've always you know, considered that adage uh, product question of don't confuse motion with progress and will we get more gains from, you know, incrementally improving X, you know, hitch within our funnel or et cetera, rather than spreading ourselves too thin. You guys have done an amazing job uh, in your strategy of delivering an excellent customer experience in each of the products that you're in. So about a year ago, Lemonade acquired Metro Mile accelerating your entrance into auto insurance. It's early innings, but how has the acquisition fared? I think you initially described it as a way to accelerate you know, data learnings as entering the auto market, which has formidable competitors. That is a daunting market. You know, we entered, we start off in home where truly there was as, as little innovation as anywhere in the insurance space. So that was perhaps the most retrograde in that sense. I, I think something like 96% of homeowners policies in America are still bought with a broker. And that's not true for, for auto. That's not true for car insurance, where you've got players like Progressive, like Geico, that are direct-to-consumer, that have excellent brands, um, that are incredibly sophisticated in their pricing, and seem to lap the industries, right? That they leave everybody else behind. So we were still are kind of humble entering this space. It's the big prize. It's the quarter of a trillion dollars or more, depending on how you count these things. But it's also the profit pool there is not spectacular because it goes very much to the to the winner takes the the spoils and everybody else struggles to make ends meet. Um, so we felt that we needed an advantaged play. We couldn't just force our way into that. And indeed, you kind of asked me before about the data learnings. This is a space where renters, we could afford to pay all that tuition. Um, the tuition in car, given the, the speed with which things move um, and the size of the industry, if you open if you open that aperture, you open that funnel and you're not optimized, you can get hit so hard with so much by way of loss ratio losses. And we're seeing some other players in the industry with, it, with that pain point. So we wanted some kind of an advantage. We, we pretty early on settled on telemetry as a game changer. So we launched a product actually before the acquisition went through. We launched our own product using the mobile phone as you know, getting all of its sensors 
And well over 90% of our customers today have the telemetry functioning constantly. So we get a continuous data feed. And car insurance uses a lot of things. You know, they use your gender and your work or employment history and your age and your credit score and all those things are predictive but they're all trying to predict how you drive we actually know how you drive you know down to the most uh, um, precise every brake every acceleration every corner that you take how much you drive how you drive these are incredible data points to be collecting but even though we were gathering that data we we didn't have enough data to close the loop you have to run that data through the loop for a while you have to collect it be able to correlate how much you're driving and how you're driving and all that kind of information with claims and you have to see enough of them come in and that's really where uh, um, the metro mile team shortened our process by years no no question they've been doing this for 10 years they are the og of uh, telemetry billions of miles of uh, real precision data they actually installed a gadget into every car that they insure and it connects to the engine and sends high fidelity, you know, high quality instruments are measuring every bit of, of your driving. Um, and they had so many claims that they could already tell us how to match every behavior to a risk profile. In addition to that, they had an alternative um, insurance entity. So they had a Delaware company that would give us a second entity. And there's a lot of advantages in that. They had licenses in 49 states. And the way things panned out with the way the stock market behaved between our signing and closing, we ended up actually acquiring them for less than the cash in the bank. So we, we found this to be a very compelling deal. It looked great in prospect. In retrospect, it looks even better. Were you scared by how MetroMile fared independently before you acquired them? Because it's a talented team. It's a wonderful team. And you rightly said that we framed it as acquiring data and expertise and, and experience rather than acquiring a going concern. So had we seen this, viewed this, pitched this as we're buying a great business, then I would have been worried about that because truth be told, it was not a great business. There were a bunch of things that didn't pan out and it's the reason that MetroMile got into the position that they got into. And you know the, the, the goodness of the fit here was that there was a great cultural fit. They were a fabulous team. Their data science and the understanding of data was just world is just world class, um, but on the business side they didn't have the upsell and the cross sell opportunities. They, I think, on the marketing side uh, and fundraising and other things, our team had done a better job. And there was really a great match that became apparent to both sides very early on. But it wasn't one of just bolting an existing going concern on top of lemonade. It was really one of can we produce a world class industry beating car insurance product by combining everything that Lemonade has and everything that MetroMile has. That was the thesis and that's what we're playing out now in the marketplace. And therefore, the question they asked me, which is, was I concerned about that underlying business? No, because we didn't see ourselves as buying a business. Right. That makes sense. So unlike other insurers, Lemonade, or I don't know if this has evolved since you initially started it, but you started off taking a flat fee of 20% or so and then putting over leftover underwriting profits into a charity give back pool um, that 
users could designate what charity they wanted to allocate their pro rata share to. Really innovative. Several years into it, how important has this been to the business's success? And does it actually drive results in behavior or is it more for marketing? It's a great question. Um, and yeah, it, it nothing has changed. We still do. That is 25%. And it, that is um, the, the same business model. Give back. We call it give back day. It's the mid-year point. And it's a, a huge source of festivity within the company. It's a, we make a big deal out of it. Um, and it's a source of tremendous pride and, and gratification to everybody at the company. So it, it has become a kind of central pillar of what we do and how we do things differently. And it was born of an attempt to try to reduce the perceived conflict of interest, whereby the, I, I don't know how, how fair this perception is, but I, I have no doubt that the perception is absolutely there, that consumers think of themselves as being in a conflicted relationship with the insurance carrier. You claim, you know, you have a kitchen fire, you claim $10,000. If I pay this $10,000, you're 10,000 richer, I'm 10,000 poorer, and vice versa. And therefore, I ultimately make money by denying your claims. And we've got plenty of research to show that that is the perception. As I say, I think in elements of the industry, it's well earned. In other places, it's a bit unfair, but the perception is, is very real. And we want to contend with that and try to neutralize the, the conflict as much as we can. And by capping our gross margin ostensibly, by saying we're not going to make more than 25% contribution margin, we think that we go a long way towards neutralizing, you know, putting out of reach those incremental dollars that place us in a direct conflict. And if I know that I can't keep any more of the money, then I'm less motivated to deny your claim. And if you know that, if you lie about your claim, if you augment your claim, if you um, embellish your claim, you're not hurting some nameless, faceless behemoth with whom you have a conflicted relationship, but you're hurting a charity that you actually care about because you told us you care about it when you onboarded, then hopefully your mindset going into this interaction changes as well. And we like to think that we've changed kind of in game theory terms, changed a bilateral relationship into a trilateral one where you've got the nonprofit in the room and it's changing your behavior, changing my behavior and changing our incentive structures and therefore allowing us to have a much more aligned relationship, trusting relationship, lowering fraud, lowering churn, um, lowering animosity, increasing NPS. That's the thesis. Here, the lack of a counterfactual makes it hard for me to, to answer your question with a, a definitive answer. We haven't got an A-B test, and this was not the only thing that we changed. So I can't really benchmark it to other insurance companies because everything is different. The way you make a claim and the app and the price, everything is so different that it's hard to neutralize this one thing and give you a statistically helpful kind of indication. But I still have a very high level of conviction that it is uh, um, profound and important and profitable. Um, not just marketing, um, but I think it's changed everything. I think it's changed a lot of our relationships with our customers. We get on a fairly regular basis, customers writing in saying, hey, thanks, you paid my claim for the laptop. Uh, my girlfriend found it, it was under the, under the couch. How do I return the money to you? And the old timers from other insurance carriers who are at Lemonade are like, we've never seen that before. So we do see behavior modification in, in that sense. Um, I think it's been really important in terms of our own motivation um, and the way we think about our customers and the, that customer centricity that we spoke about 
before and, and feeling that uh, our own motivation levels uh, as a tool for hiring and retaining not only customers, but employees as well. So I have no doubt that it, and, and I've, I have to say, I've never once apologized. We've given several million dollars to charity now, even though we're not profitable. And I've never apologized to our shareholders for doing that because I don't think it's their, at their expense. I think this is accretive to shareholder value. I think it's paying dividends to us in terms of neutralizing some of the biggest problems that insurance faces, which is deep distrust, which then manifests as churn and fraud and all different other things. And, and this is helping us perhaps not entirely put those problems to bed, but diminish their impact in a way that pays for itself. So I think this is a win-win-win. Can't pick up a newspaper without reading about generative AI today. Lemonade is probably more poised than any other PNC carrier to implement AI throughout the business. There's a lot of regulation about uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act data and decision-making and where you can actually implement an ML model. Where do you actually implement ML versus just predictive analytics? And how do you see that changing in the future? Where do you wish you could implement it more? We use it fairly extensively. So we have machine learning models now that we have about 50 different AIs or machine learning models in in production that run in real time. And every time a customer comes through our flow, those models are being pinged and in real time generating assessments of risk profile, um, oftentimes translating that into um, predictions for LTV. So that's really a series of predictions about how long the customer is likely to stay with us, what upsells they're likely to make, what claims they're likely to make, reducing all of that with a with a time value of money kind of thrown in into a single dollar sum that, that says, you know, this customer is likely to be a negative $3,000 customer or a positive $35,000 customer or what have you. And with probabilistic models, you're going to get it wrong on the individual level, but on an aggregate level, that's a very powerful thing. And we, and we use that in production right now. So all of our marketing campaigns, all our digital marketing campaigns are driven by these models. How we prioritize between our different products, between our different campaigns, between our different geographies. We let, we shared this in a recent investor day that um, the quarter prior, I think it was Q3 of last year that we shared data for, 86 cents on the dollar that we spent were determined by these AIs rather than by normal kind of growth professionals. So it, it is now governing a lot of our spend. We put enough faith in it for that. We've increasingly been able to implement it in our filings as well, although there it's very limited. But some states in, in Texas, our latest homeowners and other policies, are they've accepted ML models for pricing, which is I, I think the first time I think the first time in the United States that any regulator has allowed that, but we've actually implemented and Rather than it being a simple lookup table, which is how these filings tend to be, this makes real-time calls to the machine learning model and gets the pricing driven by that. So we've been able to implement it in in some places, early early stages, and not all regulators, as you say, are there yet. We use it in our automatic payment of claims. So we look for anomalous stuff when people make claims. We examine a lot of the materials that they send us, the documents uh, go through fraud detection, which is also machine learning models that are, are doing that. We've found quite a lot, quite a lot of that. I think we said, if memory serves, that something like hundred million dollars of claims didn't get paid because they were flagged by these kind of models that then humans check out, but it checked out, and so we were able to avoid a lot of fraudulent claims as a result of that as well. So I don't know how that compares to 
how it's being used elsewhere, but it, certainly it feels like it's it's governing a lot of what we do and, and spreading. In terms of the ethics of it, kind of the, I think we have some some work to do to convince, first of all, to be responsible ourselves and make sure that we use these tools, these powerful tools in, in ways that will make us proud and, and make everybody else proud and everyone will feel good about. I, I do think that there's room not for being sanguine about this because it's easy to get this wrong, but for being optimistic that this can be a boon for fairness rather than at the cost of fairness. And maybe I'll spend just a second on this. I mentioned earlier that in car insurance, for example, it's standard fare in the United States to use gender as a rating factor. Um, And that makes sense in that um, mile per mile driven, men are twice as likely to have a lethal accident than women are. So you say, okay, that's a highly predictive thing, gender. And most regulators in, in, in the US will allow it for that reason. It's, you know, it's, it's predictive. And as far as that go, that sounds kind of fair because, okay, it's predictive. But in, I think in a deeper level, it's really deeply unfair. The reason I say it's, it's more deeply unfair is because um, you're painting all men with the same brush. You're, you're lumping us all together and saying, okay, your gender is one that is associated with higher, um, you know, more reckless driving, and therefore we're going to penalize you for that. Whereas, actually, if you look at, if you kind of put two bell curves of risk curves of men and women, they overlap, which means that the differences between the groups is less than the differences inside the group. In other words, the range of women drivers and men drivers is greater than the difference between the average man and the average woman. All of which is to say that maybe I'm actually a very careful male driver and I don't deserve to be um, tarred with the same brush as, as all men. And conversely, maybe my wife is a terrible driver and she shouldn't be benefiting from her gender either. And if you have big data, you can pierce through those issues. So you can start getting closer um, to the kind of the Martin Luther King notion of not judging by externalities, but looking into the core of the person. Because once I've got the kind of data that telemetry gives me, I don't need to look at those kind of superficial groupings and say, oh, you're a man, I'm going to charge you whatever. I'm going to say you're this kind of driver. And therefore, the abundance of data properly stored, properly used, privacy protected, in theory, at least allows me to um, avoid crude groupings which I think of necessity have an element of unfairness to them and break those groupings apart under the weight of the data and the way, and the power of the machine learning and get ever closer. It's a theoretical terminus. We'll never get there, but ever closer to pricing your risk based on who you are rather than on some external thing, your age, your credit score, your gender, which is what the industry is stuck at today. So that's where I hope all of this ends up. But we as an industry and I think companies like yours and ours as, as leaders from the tech perspective have a lot of responsibility and a lot of work to do to make sure that it is used in that fashion and not in any other way. Right. The never-ending journey of de-averaging to get to individual pricing. I'm familiar with that. You're one of the first insured techs to go public. Going public is a, is a huge celebration for a team, um, but it's also just a day in the journey of a company. And not everyone realizes that. Um, Operating as a public company can be distracting, especially when uh, 
interest rates spike 5% and multiples compress and you know it's it's scary for a lot of tech companies and insure tech companies um, how has going public changed your focuses as a leader in your day thankfully a lot less than i had feared i i think having some gray hair and i've only got gray hair <laughs> having some gray hair helps you know i i was around uh, and actually CEO of a, of a tech company in in the dot-com bubble burst. And I was around in, in similar roles in the 2008. And um, so I've been around these cycles a couple of times. I've been around the table in leadership roles in public companies as they've gone through these cycles. So um, I kind of made a promise to myself, which I surprised myself in keeping. I, I thought it's easy to make promises to yourself, but I actually played out that I wouldn't let going public become too much of a distraction. And Shai, my co-founder, and I kind of made ourselves a promise and told the company, this is not the end, it's the beginning of a journey, and we're not going to be consumed by the share price and all that kind of stuff. And it's been a relief to me to see how true we've been able to be to that kind of promise internally. And as you say, it's been tumultuous times, right? We, we IPO'd at $29, flew up to 180 then dropped 90% from there and I have members of my family and friends kind of checking in on me, how am I and am I okay? And they worry for me and it's been it's been fine. I, I spoke earlier about the time horizon and if you think in quarters or even in years, that, that's not the time horizon that we've been thinking and we're thinking about multiple years and even decades. And, and along those timelines, these m massive fluctuations over short periods of time become uninteresting. Um, so I think that that's something to kind of keep in mind. Um, these things correct over time. I suspect that shooting up to 180 was excessive. And I think that going down to where we are now may be equally excessive. And that's fine. And that's fine. And that's not what we're about. And in fact, it's hard to take either one of those things too personally because they were macro trends, as you say. They were reflective of things that were happening in growth stocks for the better and for the worse. And we didn't get to take credit for the one and we can't entirely take blame for the other. We recently announced our 11th successive quarter quarterly results since going public and 11 quarters out of 11. We have hit or exceeded guidance and raised it. Hit or exceeded consensus and, and raised guidance. So I think that is the measure that I try to keep the team focused on is we have to do what we said we were going to do and the stock price will do what the stock price will do and it will come in the fullness of time it will reflect the value that we're creating so i i i know those are slogans that are often thrown around it's been a relief to me to to be able to live by them in a meaningful way and and therefore the distraction to the company and the the machinations or the fluctuations have been much less impactful than I would have anticipated or that you that you might have, have guessed. And on the flip side, it's been very empowering for us. It's allowed us to raise a lot of money during the good times. We don't need to raise money now. We're, we're well funded. We've got a billion dollars in the bank. But even if we had to, um, I'd rather raise it as a public company than as a private one right now. As a public company, you always have access to funding. You may not like the valuation, but the existential threat that private companies can face in eras like this is, I think, reduced when you're a public company. You may not get the price that you think you deserve, but you'll be able to raise money. There's more capital, more pools of capital available to public companies. As I say, we're lucky not to be in that position at all. And I only half joke that actually the biggest day-to-day -day impact of being a public company that I struggle with is when people say to me, how are things going at Lemonade? And I always stutter because 
just at the fair disclosure rules, I, I don't know what to say in answer to that. If I say everything's going great, have I just given a signal to somebody? <laughs> Is that insider trading? If I say anything different, so I always try to look for kind of neutral ways to answer that question. Um, and that's the one that kind of on a daily basis trips me up. Everything else is kind of business as usual, almost. So we're in a business with no North Star metric. You have to consider growth, conversion rates, approval rates, persistency rates, underwriting profitability, company profitability. Just as we were talking earlier about your multi-product strategy, you could decide whether you want to be first year profitable on your initial renters policy or whether you want to be profitable on the overall you know, blended product portfolio LTV. How do you balance all these metrics and balance growth with all the counter metrics? Yeah, I think it's always a bit of a challenge. You, you I think, outline that really effectively. And the right answer of you know, what to prioritize changes over time. Some of this we, we've spoken about publicly. So apropos the markets and the, the changes, two things two things in the macro have changed for us. You know, we feel them internally. Interestingly, a lot of the core business hasn't. Demand has held up, insurance is counter cyclical or at least somewhat immune to other economic cycles and demand has been strong, growth has been strong. Um, But two things do penetrate into the company. One is inflation and particularly in a a place where you can't control pricing. Um, So you're still stuck charging an old price, but you're paying out claims based on the new price. So loss ratios spike as a result of that. And that's one that we've had to contend with. And that's made us refocus. And, you know, once we detected that, that required massive shifts in focus and resources. And the other one is cost of capital. So when your share price is at 180 or at 18, your cost of capital um, are kind of 10x different. And then when capital becomes more dear, you want to conserve it all the more carefully and you don't want to start raising money when it's going to be highly dilutive and therefore we've also shifted our pace of growth and our spending in general in a manner that is responsive to the cost of capital. I likened it in in a couple of places to shifting from we're going down the same path you want to get you're driving down you want to get to your destination when gas is cheap you optimize for miles per hour you go as quickly as you can but when gas goes past five bucks, you might start thinking about the mile per gallon rather than mile per hour. And it will take you longer to get to your destination, but the gas will last longer. And we've made that shift. We've shifted from miles per hour to miles per gallon. We're slowing down our growth and we hope to pick it up again when when those cycles change as well. So definitely with the ebb and flow of the macro, we've changed what we're focused on, what are our priorities. And we manage that process through a familiar methodology we, we use the okrs the objectives and key results methodology that's become fairly commonplace um so i will um present quarterly okrs to the company um i'll do a mid in a town hall i'll do a mid-quarter check-in and tell people exactly where we are and hold ourselves accountable to every objective and key result and then at the end of the quarter we'll do a retrospective as well um and then that um kind of cascades down. So every group down to every squad will do their own OKRs, not necessarily an exact cascade, but certainly at least partially overlapping with what are the the big goals, which everybody is very focused on. So that's the way that as our internal kind of priorities change, that's the way we organize them and cascade them and share them. You know, last question, Daniel, you're a very level-headed person and you're probably uh, better at processing stress and volatility than most people 
who are running a, a public tech company right now. Um, if your leadership team had to describe your leadership style, what would they say? I, I think they would use some of the terms that you used that I'm level-headed or kind of unflappable or something like that. I'm not entirely unflappable, but I, I think that I, I'd get some credit for that. Um, they'd say that I'm very trusting. I'm very much a, I'm not a micromanager. I try to surround myself with people who know what they're doing better than I do. And then I don't try to replace my own thoughts with theirs. So I'm engaged and involved, and I'd like to think that I'm a thought partner to them. But I'm not a manager in the classic sense, and certainly not a micromanager at that. I'm, I'm much more of a conductor. I try to provide true north and make sure that the symphony is, is working, but I can't play any instrument better than whoever's holding the instrument right now. So I do try to offer the true north, the conductor, whatever metaphor we use, I do, do try and see my role as having, as making sure that everybody has that lighthouse, that clarity on what it is that we're focusing on, but then largely get out of the way and stay involved, but not a close manager. Maybe the one other thing, certainly this is how I see my role. Um, it sounds a bit odd, but it, it's one that I've learned is important is, I think one of my jobs is to be ambitious for the company. Um, and I think probably I'm that also describe that as being a force for pushing us for you know, a voracious appetite for getting better and stronger and bigger and, and more profitable and a bit of a locomotive in that in that sense. But it, it's fairly amorphous and generalized and I do kind of management by walking around rather than particularly tight management. Not my style, not good at it, never like being managed that way myself. Daniel, this has been a fascinating hour. Thank you for taking the time. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed this. I certainly did. It's always a pleasure. So thank, thank you, Peter. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of What's Your Ethos? If you're interested in helping to protect the next million families, come join us. You can learn more about ethos at ethoslife.com. I'll see you next time.